I think that coaching is something that should be available for, for everybody. So we, we definitely have a, an issue within, and again, the all-in census um, showed it. We've got an issue within the industry where people might come in at certain levels and, and hit a middle management and then leave. But I do feel like with the support of coaching, actually we can uh, let them or allow them to have a better plan and route to the top. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Ella Sager. And today, DEI, EDI, DNI, no matter what the acronym you use, it is undeniable that conversations around equality, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and everything in between, have been increasing across the board in recent years. These issues obviously predate the murder of George Floyd in 2020, but I think it's fair to say that that really brought about a lot of change in terms of people recognising the need for open conversation, awareness and education. But how does talk translate to action within the media industry? Whether it's about company culture, representative content, employee experience or leadership, DEI touches most aspects of people's lives, even if we do not necessarily always see it. And while this is not unique to media, it is something we have a unique view of because we have the one-of-a-kind all-in census, which gives us an idea of the composition and health of the industry's workforce. So here today to chat through the nitty-gritty of diversity, equality, equity, inclusion in leadership in media and advertising, I'm delighted to be joined by fellow podcaster, Director of Publisher Partnerships for Northern Europe at Criteo and member of Media for All, Shez Iqbal. Thanks for joining us, Shez. Thank you so much for having me. And also joining us to chat, not as a host for once, but as a guest, is my colleague and fellow reporter, Jack Benjamin. It's really weird sitting in the opposite chair for the first <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, it feel wrong. <laughs> it, feel, it feels absolutely perfect. Okay. Thanks for hosting. <laughs> it's my pleasure. So uh, now we're going to kind of chat about a lot of big issues in this podcast. And Shez, to start with you, if you don't mind, I kind of... I, I, I'm hesitant to ask this question because for me, it's kind of a dreaded question. But what is your background, if you don't mind my asking? And then more specifically, how did you get started in, in media? Yeah. When you say background, you mean which part of London I'm from? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what happens, right? You get stopped by someone and they say, what's your background? And then I say, I'm from London. And they say, no, where? And I go, South London. I say, no, where? And I go, how well do you know South London? <laughs> um, so, so my family are originally... From, from India, right? Mm -hmm. So pre-partition, and then they moved over to Pakistan. And my parents came over to study and then, and then met each other. And uh, yeah, I was, I was born here. Mm. Yeah, you kind of have to, when you get that question, because you, you feel that question quite a lot, you sometimes, you feel a bit, not like you've got to make people work for it a little bit because it's sort of like, well, what's your background? It's a kind of, where are you really from? And, and it's all of that kind of uncomfortable conversations where, where is it coming from a curiosity place is Absolutely. it coming from like a a more malicious place and, and it doesn't feel great but so from from there like what, how did you get started in in media and advertising was it like a a straight path is it something you always knew you wanted to do I think I'm one of the only people I've met who doesn't answer that question with I fell into media <laughs> <laughs> I didn't fall into media I wanted to work in media. So I was lucky enough to have work experience um, as part of my education. So at school, we had a couple of weeks where you could pick to to do a bit of a placement. My placement was at Lohard Spink. So I worked in an ad agency and I was on the production team looking at different colours for print. Absolutely exciting. <laughs> and I 
stumbled upon the wrong floor one day, saw a whole bunch of people with their own office, very fancy suits, and asked, who are they? And I said, well, those are the commercial guys. Those are the suits. They go out and they, they get the business. They're, they're the people that essentially handle all the big contracts and the deals. And I said, well, that's I think that's what I want to do. So I, I always had this aspiration to work within media and to work within the commercial component of media as well. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's very rare to get a question, like an answer of, oh, we need, like, oh, I've always wanted to to do that. I mean, Jack, I don't know if you, kind of your background and your path into media, is it something you always wanted to do? Ooh, uh, it's an interesting question. I've always loved the media, but I'd studied politics and policy, and I came to understand, uh, you know, politics can't get done without strong democracy, and you can't have a strong democracy with without a strong fourth estate. So uh, that kind of motivated me to get into journalism. Um, I don't usually get questions about my background. I'm, I'm a white guy. Um, I'm Jewish, so I have a bit of a you know unique background from from Eastern Europe. Um, but that that wouldn't get brought up in conversation. Uh, you know, someone doesn't notice that. Um, not that that has anything necessarily to do with my interests in the media either. And I, I, I imagine it's the same for you. I mean, I think people come to this industry either they fall into it or they fall in love with it, and that's probably regardless of what their you know individual ethnic background might be. I think background in the industry does play a big part, though. Mm. So I don't know what it's like being a Jewish white guy. having never been a Jewish white guy myself. Right. But having been an Asian person my whole life, my parents, of course, wanted me to become either a lawyer or an accountant or an engineer. You've heard the story a million Mm -hmm. times before. So when I turn up and I say I work in advertising, my mom doesn't understand what that means. She doesn't know what to say to her friends. So for years my mom told everyone that I was a journalist. Mm. And I'm, I'm pretty sure she still doesn't really get what it is that I do. And how would you say, so yeah, that kind of leads into the kind of next question of uh, like, how do you think issues around DEI have affected your career, your path to leadership um, in media? And uh, what do you think? I mean, obviously, so there's the kind of conversations and explanations to to your family and things like that. But do you think there's been maybe you've taken different paths because of these kinds of things affecting like what's out there? I think there's a, there's a lot in that question. Mm. So there's certainly something there in, in regards to your values and the values that you bring from your background into your role. And of course, your cultural differences from yourself and your colleagues. I'm Muslim, so it was a bit strange for me to come into an industry that has such a strong drinking culture. Mm. And that was certainly quite a difficult thing to tackle earlier, definitely earlier on in my career, where you're trying to even network internally and all the networking is done at the pub, which I'm okay being at the pub, but there are some people that feel really uncomfortable if you're there, but you're not partaking in the alcohol. And there are other things like, you know, our, our industry is famous for some fantastic events, for bringing people together. But usually when we're bringing people together, it's, again, in a pub, or, or it used to be in a pub or a club. Uh, there was one organisation that I worked at where you'd go out all night and the next day you'd be greeted with an orange juice and a bacon sarnie. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what's there for me? And they said, well, you can have two orange juices. <laughs> so so I, had, I had some fantastic vitamin C, mm. Mm, but not, not much additional yeah. nourishment. 
Uh, so so that, that that definitely played a part. But I th- I think that we've evolved quite a bit. That was my next question. If it's changed, because yeah. I I sometimes I'll give up drinking and 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 I will uh, not. Not it's a different, but I think there are more options than maybe there used to be. But I don't know if it's still quite there yet. Like people still are, from my perspective anyway, a bit kind of like, oh, you're not drinking. Why are you not drinking? Um, yeah. So the why you're not drinking thing is definitely a huge component in accepting some level of comfort on on the other part. So I might have hidden the fact that I wasn't drinking on certain occasions mm-hmm. because the other person or the group might not feel so comfortable. So I'd end up drinking loads of like Red Bull or which, you know, looks like it's something, you know, it could be an alcoholic drink or Coca-Cola with, you know, whatever lime. And, but, but now I do feel that we're all a little bit more health conscious and that's helped a lot. And, and of course we're just much more culturally aware as well. So we we do ask questions like what are your dietary requirements mm. we do try to facilitate events and occasions around different needs and wants you're not just doing everything down the pub i've taken my team out to escape rooms we've done axe throwing and you know all sorts of random things well, that sounds great axe throwing <laughs> is great by the way yeah i absolutely love it uh go-karting all sorts of stuff and you can't do all of that with a drink so it does make it somehow a little bit more open and, and inclusive. And I think inclusivity in, in, in those activities and bringing people together is something that's a little bit more at the forefront of mind with leadership because at the end of the day, there's such a struggle in bringing people together now. Mm-hmm. So if you're not... With being, hybrid working and... Absolutely. Like so hybrid working has been fantastic for me, right? Because when we're bringing people together, actually the, the question of inclusivity is so much more prevalent, mm-hmm. right? And I think others within the industry are feeling it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so trying to have events that are alcohol-free or that can be done online and things like that. I think we've had a similar thing with our company where we've had questions of how do we include people that are fully remote and make them feel like part of the company culture. And that's, yeah, there's inclusive leadership. There's also inclusive company culture and things that that are touched on a lot by some of our columnists. I mean, Jack, do you think that, like, for you with DEI and and your career path, do you do you have any similar stories around that? You know, it's interesting because when I knew I was going to be part of this conversation, I thought it was it was kind of weird or maybe uncomfortable for me because I don't interact with DEI all that much as a white guy, but I actually do. I just might not be as conscious of it. And I think actually leaning into that conversation is something that a lot of people in the industry fail to do often. You know, people perhaps more closer to my position will just kind of back away or they'll feel like this isn't really my space or, or maybe just get anxious about, oh, they might say something that uh, just the wrong thing or could be taken the wrong way, um, rightfully or wrongfully. So I haven't necessarily run up against it in my career other than to say that I know that a lot of hiring efforts, um, I'm, I'm early, relatively early career, a lot of hiring efforts that I've seen have been definitely putting emphasis on making sure they have diverse hires. And I think that from what I've seen in this industry, that that's definitely played a part. What I would note is a lot of the conversation seems to be shifting beyond that recently. You know, it's one thing to, okay, say, let's make sure we we have more diverse hiring processes. And it's another thing to say, okay, now that we've hired and have a more diverse staff, how, what can we do to support them? And I think that there's a lot of challenges that, that the industry that it's running into now. 
on that level. And that's not to say that hiring practices can't further be improved or, or more can't be done there, but it seems like the conversation is moving from a numbers game to a equity game a little bit more, and that's been played out in some of our columns recently. Yeah, absolutely. But if you turn that on its head, I think there's something quite positive about that. So mm. early on in my career, I definitely felt some struggles because of my name. So my name is actually Shezad, and I shortened that down to Shez to make it easier for me from a work perspective. <clears throat> I can remember in particular not getting messages or not getting the emails come through because I was using my my full name. Mm. So I had to shorten that down to to optimize my ability to essentially sell or to to be uh, to, to get those com- communications come through. So I, I think there is something about the fact that, exactly as you say, Jack, Jack that uh, we've gone from a place of maybe we, we're better at the hiring and now we need to lean in with that curiosity and, and support our, our workforce. But that's a good place to be as well, that we've we've tackled some of the recruitment, maybe not all of it, and now it's about, okay, well, you've got this this fantastic workforce, this diverse workforce. What can you do with them? How can you get the most out of them? How can you support them? How can companies and leaders best support professionals of diverse backgrounds? Like, what does that look like? And is there a sort of, I don't know if gold standard's the right way of thinking about it, but like a sort of the threshold that we should be reaching, like as a minimum, and offering, you know, your employees. You mentioned the all-in census earlier. So for those who don't know, the all-in census, uh, 19,000 participants, I think it's the the largest census of its kind. Within there, it spoke to, um, it really shares the the split out of minorities, right? What what I noticed from there was that 18% of those surveyed were ethnic minorities and 10% in particular are in C-suite. And I'm not too sure that our industry reflects the nation. So even if you look at it from a London perspective, 38% of London is made up of ethnic minorities or global majorities, which is another phrase that I've, I've seen, <laughs> I've picked up recently. Like I think that. it's fantastic. I think that we need to look at ways in which we can support the succession planning for the, the top end. So we, we know, we're fully aware, even at Critio, that uh, we don't have diversity in terms of uh, ethnicity at the top. But what I'm, I'm pleased to say is that we've got sponsorship from our CRO, CRO Brian Gleason and CFO, Sarah Goodwin, to say, hey, that's something that we're going to be investing in. So coaching in, or allowing or opening up for coaching and training and support for your global majority workforce or ethnic minority workforce, however you want to label it, is, is a fantastic place to start. And I say offering it because some people are happy where they are. You can't make that assumption. Mm-hmm. I think the worst thing you can do is go out onto the office floor, which I know a lot of organizations do. So just tap on the shoulders of a person of color and just say, hey, I want you to lead our EIG group and I want you to come up with all the answers. They, they don't have all of the answers. Mm-hmm. They, and then, on top of their day job. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So you need to make that investment. So I think you need sponsorship from the top, mm-hmm. that support. And sponsorship means re- really checking in. There's There's... A responsibility there on the sponsor to spend time checking in, making sure that we're hitting particular goals and understanding exactly what those goals are, and then supporting your workforce to ensure that they're getting what they need. So there's curiosity there, there's education, there's training. Again, if I think back to you, you mentioned, you know, the horrendous murder of, of George Floyd. I think 
organizations did a great job in terms of creating a bit of space for their workforce to vent and talk and share and maybe have some collaborative growth. But I believe that we need to evolve from that. And now it is that point of action, which is what, I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have that space. We should absolutely still allow for that space, but also allow for that space for growth. And that comes from coaching, mentoring, training, education, and, and just more support there where they need to have that active plan so that there is a succession in place for, for those at the top. And you are a coach as well. You're a trained yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I have to take the time to shout out Coaches of Colour. I think they do a fantastic mm-hmm. job as well. So mm-hmm. we've utilised them at Critio. And I think that coaching is something that should be available for, for everybody. So we, we definitely have a, an issue within, and again, the audience census um, showed it. We've got an issue within the industry where people might come in at certain levels and, and hit a middle management and then leave. But I do feel like with the support of coaching, actually we can let them or allow them to have a better plan and route to the top. Do you think, I mean, we've talked a little bit about um, the kind of culture and like employee experience. If we talk about leadership for a second, Mm. and I think what I'm hearing is like listening is a really important element and not just, and then actually doing something with what you've heard. And because I think for my, like, you know, you can do a company-wide survey and then if nothing happens, then it feels like it's a bit pointless. Um, So I just wanted to ask you guys what, as what does an inclusive leader look like? And have you had any leaders that you have that have influenced you or you've looked up to? In, uh, influenced my career is, is still early on. I think when I think of really good leadership, something that sticks out from when I was growing up was the sort of advice given by someone like Barack Obama of like, let's just have as many people in the room and I'm, as you say, I'm going to listen. And, you know, he's... He, he was the executive of the U.S., probably most powerful, certainly the most powerful man in the world at that time. And he was still humble to say, I don't know most of what I need to know. So I'm going to listen to an expert and, and, and hear from them, hear from their perspective. Um, and I think the same should be said of any aspiring leader, that the best leaders are actually the ones that are team players, that listen to people that have diverse perspectives, that can inform better. Um, so I think that's the type of leadership quality that I tend to look for. So kind of admitting that you don't have all the answers. I think yeah, that absolutely. maybe is like a misconception about leadership and leaders is that they should always know exactly what to do and have everything like in their in their brain. But admitting like, oh, well, we don't, I don't actually know about this is quite a powerful thing. Not just admitting, but then listening mm-hmm. to people that do that do have personal experience or personal knowledge of whatever it is that that they're discussing it's that extra step of not just saying well i don't really know so because some some leaders might say i don't really know so maybe let's take a stab at something or let's guess in a certain way it's like no you have resource available to you you just need to listen to it Mm. yeah i totally agree with that i think being authentic as a leader has never been more important And authenticity is definitely something that's been spoken about a lot. So if you can say, I don't have all the answers, then of course you're going to connect with your workforce and they're going to appreciate that. They may not also have all the answers, so they can be open about that. And then within that, there is space for creativity. I think in terms of those leaders that inspired me, I would say that more recently, again, with my work with Media for All, and, and I've got to speak to some of them, on my podcast, Leadership in Colour, people like 
Liam Mullins of uh, The Seven Star, a Clint brand by me, Naren Patel, who set up uh, Media for All, Raveline at uh, Microsoft, JITV, uh, Dora at The Ozone Project, it, these and so many more, I, sh- I should say, have, have been uh, really inspiring because I do feel like I can connect with them and also I can appreciate their journey. And there is something about being able to see someone who's had perhaps some component of your struggle or some component of your background that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable in your role. And, and again, you know, if going back to the, the all-in census or maybe even something you might have witnessed yourself, if you're not comfortable in the environment that you're in, then obviously you're going to leave the industry. And we're, we're seeing that, we're feeling that. Throughout my career, I would say that it's not just people from minority groups or global majority groups that have been inspiring. There is a framework that's been put in place with the struggles that we've seen for women within the industry that I feel we can also apply to people from uh, minority groups too. I'm not saying it's exactly the same, absolutely not. Uh, but they're at different points in their their journey. And I feel like the work that's been done to support women within the industry or women within, within the workforce uh, to ensure that they are getting at board level, to ensure that their voice is heard, can also be applied to people of colour. Mm-hmm. And I've been inspired by uh, female leaders um, throughout my career. They've they've just been fantastic. So my my own manager who, uh, at Critio, who's Francisca Ferraz, uh, her manager is uh, Sofia Revellino at Outbrain. There's a uh, Stephanie Himoff, Kareem uh, Oren. There's all all these fantastic people who are just inspiring leaders. I should also say my my own wife, my mum, because I might listen to the podcast. Later as well. <laughs> um, if if we're talking about it from a, a DEI perspective. Many people from different backgrounds have had their lived experiences and bringing those lived experiences to your role as a leader not just allows you to be authentic, but allows you to connect Mm -hmm. with your workforce. that empathy. Absolutely. Mm. Like another level of empathy. Absolutely. What about you, Ella? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this touches on a column that that Jan Gooding wrote a few weeks ago. And she and she, there was a quote that she finished with, which I loved, which was, I could have done with a leader who at least asked me what it was like to be in my shoes and didn't expect them to be high heels. Mm. Um, but I think for me, again, like leaders are like the best listeners um, that, that are kind of putting themselves in your shoes and trying to think, OK, so what what are your sort of day to day kind of challenges or like what are your goals? What are you and asking questions? Um, I think that's something that can be uh, kind of a bit lost sometimes in like, you know, formal uh, structures where it feels like you you can't, it, it's just, a, it should just be a conversation rather than like a form that you fill in and sort of like note, like note everything down. There is a, a bit in between though. So there's mm. that component of a leader that's really directive there's that leader that's maybe a little bit more open and asking loads and loads of questions. And there's, there's that other bit, which is they just get it. And I do feel like leaders who have either come from a diverse background or have led diverse teams and have asked those questions and, and been on those journeys and, and, and understand a little bit more and are openly curious can have much more optimized conversations because mm. they just get it mm-hmm. you know if, mm. as a real basic example during ramadan uh, i'm fasting 
if, if my manager is, is curious, then they just get it that I might just be a little bit sleepy or I, I might just uh, need to lo- lo- yeah, log off a little bit earlier or whatever it might be. And, and that empathy and that appreciation is only going to come from a leader who has already been curious or has uh, a bit of a diverse background and they can apply their empathy from their, their lived experiences to what you're going through. Mm. Ella, you, you brought up the topic of leadership and I just wanted to highlight, um, there's a really good op-ed that people might have missed. It was all the way from last September. Um, so I would forgive anyone for, even if they did read it, having forgotten by now. But it was from um, Sumran Call, um, who is Media for All's Director of Insight. And he said, quote, to put it bluntly, there are many people in our industry who don't want diverse and inclusive environments. Over the past few years, I've privately spoken and listened to a lot of people about the topic. My summary of overall sentiment is nearly everyone acknowledges the imbalances, most want, quote unquote, progress. Many are indifferent and quite a few see it as a threat, unquote. I think this is a really important issue in the sense that it's easy to sort of talk a big game about diversity, especially among leadership, but it's a lot harder to actually get people interested, leaders included, in taking action and putting in all that effort to make inclusivity a a major part of their organization. And I'm curious what your your thoughts are. I think there is the, uh, you know, I speak about what we can learn from women in the workforce and that there's been so many steps that we've taken to try and support with women within the workforce and just just look at it from a board level perspective okay senior level c level try to get women more uh inclusive in in the workforce and i i don't really know if they if they did care or if they were just sort of ticking a box what, what i'm really talking about is well the, look at the appointments that they made I said, well, they need a woman on the on the board. And the roles that they inevitably gave in most of the organizations at, at the start of this journey was in HR or marketing. Took a long time to get them into the other components. I mean, I, I say from, from our end, our, our CFO is uh is, is a woman is Sarah Gipkin. So, you know, we 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 do well at, at Critio in, in terms of diversity. Our CEO is, is a lady as well, uh, Megan. But there are so many organizations where if we talk about the start of the journey, they were they were really just sort of almost roles that were given. And I don't think it's that different from an ethnic minority or a global majority perspective either. So often you'll see, for example, the CTO will be a person of color, or it could be again, HR or marketing. And I'm not saying that these are roles that are not important roles, they're definitely important roles, but people from those particular groups or backgrounds were almost pigeonholed to say, okay, well, you know what? What's the what's the role that we're going to give? What's the function that we're going to give? And, and and those were the ones that were given away. I also don't see if that's that much of a negative either, because it's great to see a woman on the board. It's great to see a person of color in in uh, C suite. Yeah, and if that person's got there because there was a boxing exercise, fine. That person is there. Now that person owns that place. And it's up to them to, to take advantage of it. I'm not too sure that the white middle-aged men who got those roles because they're, you know, their friends, their dad was friends with the CEO, asked the same question, right? Mm-hmm. They they got that role for whatever reason. They're there. They, they'd made the most out of it. Yeah, it's that whole idea of like, oh, did you get this? Are you the diversity hire? Exactly. Um, oh, do you, is this a meritocracy? I think those are the kinds of questions. And that's maybe when Sumran's talking about how he was saying 
people feel threatened. But it, it and that's something that is it better to be? Yeah, I think Jan Gooding also talks about well the diversity hire like it doesn't feel like a good good thing to be. But it but actually we maybe should kind of think about it slightly differently. And and as it kind of echoing your point, shares of like well it kind of gets you in the room. But I hope that we've moved beyond those kind of quotas and diversity hires and things like that and and that it is a meritocracy and that there is it's a recognition of the real talent there but maybe that's me being idealistic but uh, yeah i'm not too sure about that i i I do still think that there are organizations that are probably still doing that uh and and again i there, there are pros and cons at the end of the day if we can bring more diversity to the board for whatever reason that's 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 great it is again feeding into the fact that People at grassroots, people at middle management can see more diversity at a board level and therefore are more likely to want to take that journey as well, as opposed to leave the industry. Because mm-hmm. mm. yeah. mm. that is the alternative, isn't it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's been a huge problem, as noted by this year's census, wasn't it? That so many people leave mid-level, especially people of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a slight improvement and the pool is bigger in the audience census. True. But the, the improvements are tiny i think we're talking about your sort of single digit percentage points so yeah you're, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, people are leaving the industry and we still need to support that again it goes back to that succession planning so making sure that we're investing in that workforce so again at the board level if we can bring more diversity fantastic i think there is that framework that's been put in place for women in the workforce that that you know minority groups can can look at but your question is more about well look are we do leadership really care about this? Mm. And I think that there are components of leadership that don't care and just do this uh, box ticking exercise. And that's fine. You know, if, if that's what they do, then at least we're getting people in those those seats and it's up to them to then take advantage and build a platform around it. And, and the others do care. And I think those that care need to really put proper heart, soul and investment into it. And that means putting in the time to, to support your teams, putting in the the actual commercial investment to support those teams as well. It's, it's all well and good to say, well, I, you know, I wear this badge. I think wearing a badge is actually something that I, I do find a, a little bit irritating. But watching someone earn that badge, you know, really, really being a mentor, really being an ally, is fantastic. It's a beautiful thing. You know, and, and that's where you're going to build the loyalty within your workforce as well. You mentioned earlier, like your podcast, Leadership mm. in Colour. And so for those that haven't had the pleasure of listening, I would highly recommend. Thank um, you. Uh, can you just describe what it kind of touches on and how it links with Media for All and its work? And also just to, I've just joined Media for All, so I'm quite biased. In Congratulations. This. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Maybe, I think Media for All itself might be one of the best networks I've ever joined. So I really look forward to hearing your, your thoughts and, and feedback on that. Uh, no pressure to... <laughs> to the Media for All gang. So Leadership in Colour came from a project that I was working on within Critio to essentially showcase and give a bit of a platform to leaders of colour within the organisation. And the idea is that if you can see Leadership in Colour, then perhaps you can feel inspired or motivated to take that path as well, if, if it's a path that you, you wish. It's not strictly a DEI podcast, so I've taken it external now, mm-hmm. um, and with the support of MIFA, so it's a good question. Um, MIFA essentially do all the 
admin work. They 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 do all the fantastic admin work in terms of promoting the the podcast, uh, delivering it across their channels, and also supporting me in any of the creative work on um, on the social media side of things. I'd say that that we've got a fantastic team at Critio that does all the the editing. And it just gives me a bit of freedom. It's a real joint effort. It's, it's a real joint effort. And it just gives me the the space to source people to interview and, and, and do the actual interview piece itself. So, you know, make the podcast. The, the content itself covers off the background, the education, the, the early years, and any advice that could be given to those that are coming into the industry. And then I try to touch upon what that person's also working on at the moment, because just because a person's a person of color and they're a leader, that doesn't mean that that's the only component of them that we want to talk about. We also want to hear a bit about what they're working on and uh, their thoughts and perspective on pertinent topics at the moment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it kind of mixes that personal, professional, Absolutely. all of these things. And with Media for All, how would you describe it to someone that's maybe never heard of it? Media for All is essentially a network to support ethnic minorities within the media industry. Uh, and that support comes, I should remember the pillars, I'm going to get kicked after this by oh, no. Nikki. Uh, <laughs> this was not Nikki, a test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nikki and Noren are going to kick me. But, but, but essentially it helps with recruitment into the industry and support for those that are already in the industry as well. The com- some of the conversations that I've been privileged to have been phenomenal in terms of giving guidance on how to support uh, your workforce, how to build programs around Black History Month, South Asian Heritage Month, or you know o- other key uh, milestones within within the diary. There's also support within the network for other things that you can, you can imagine, like HR insights whatever it might be. So it's a real supportive network for those that are from minority groups within within the industry. I'd also say that there's this other component that's kind of, that, that Naren's um, brought in, Naren's the founder, which is Mediafor did actually support the All In Census mm. and, you know, with, with different steering groups and working groups as well. And there's there are other um, research threads that, that Mediafor also supports. I, I just think that the support of that um, collective voice within the industry is phenomenal. Mm. Uh, this is um, a bit of a kind of sideways step. It is uh, South Asian Heritage Month this Absolutely. month yeah, it is. between 18th of July and the 17th of August. So I was quite ignorant about this until last year and I wrote an article and this is how I first got in touch with Nikki from Media for All mm-hmm. um, uh, about how brands could get involved. Do Is it something, do you think that the people in the media community are aware of are we doing enough to kind of celebrate it and i mean obviously it's kind of compared with other things like black history month pride and international women's day i don't know what we think generally of those kinds of a day a month for this community or that community with any of these days it's it's always great to have a time of the year to recognize uh, you know different members of society that that might not get fair recognition the rest of the year but i think part of the the negative that can come from that is that, you know, you have brands or advertisers that just only will focus on things at certain times of the year. I'm not sure if South Asian Heritage Month is really high on advertisers' uh, uh, radars. I mean, perhaps Shez or Ali, you, you would know better than I, but um, I have to imagine that they, if they were smart, they wouldn't 
necessarily focus just on this one month of the year. I think the fact that you don't know if it is big on any uh, brand's mind means proves that it's not, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you've pro- you've seen all the tie-ups around Black History Month. You've seen the tie-ups around International Women's Day, around Pride. I mean, Pride, I think, this year was you know huge. Mm-hmm. South Asian Heritage Month is still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Exactly like you were that. I wasn't really aware of it until sort of last year, maybe maybe the year before. And there's, there's still a, a road there. I think there's a, there's a story to be told. I'm not sure everybody's particularly aware of partition, particularly aware of the struggles of those from um, South Asian heritage. In terms of the, the need and, the, you know, my thoughts and feelings of, of these sort of months and, and weeks, we do need them. We do still need those, those periods to be able to allow space for celebration. But I totally appreciate the inverse opinion of that, which is we, we should just have this as a norm. You know, every day should be International Women's Day. Every day should be a component of you know, Black History Month. We, we shouldn't just be celebrating these once a year. Within our organisation, we do it twice a year because we, we acknowledge the, the US and, and um, the UK. And, and I, I totally get that. And I think that those brands that are only investing in that message once a year are missing a missing a trick. I almost feel like those months when maybe there's a, a heightened sensitivity to those topics, you can really explore and be creative and, and test and then use the findings of your tests to do something. Yeah, exactly. The rest of your, your creative schedule. So I, I do feel like that's maybe a better use of, of those months and those days. I, I've yet to see what's going to happen with South Asian Heritage Month, but hopefully there'll be something and, and uh, you know, I'm excited to see its evolution. So now we're going to move on to our sec- section on quick hits. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of what's in the news this week. And since it's the media industry, there is always news. There's always things going on. So um, this week, Netflix quietly dropped its basic no ads tier in the UK and the US, which was they started that in Canada. And just before they released their Q2 results. So are you guys Netflix subscribers? Yes. How do you think this is going to affect the streaming service? You're you're a Netflix subscriber? I am. Are you not? Uh well, I think technically at the moment my girlfriend's mom is and that's how I've been. Oh, watching. you're one of the kind of oh, I I have a login for. <laughs> well, they are it's not like password sharing. I mean, it is like family oh, the plan. family profile. I, yeah. I'm just a beneficiary by nature of living with with someone. Proxy, but, yeah. 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 Um but you presumably pay for Netflix yourself. I do, yeah. And are you, are you sensitive to any price increases? Yeah, that... would you kind of shift to an advertising tier or like uh, what do you... Because it's like no new subscribers can't choose the no ads tier, basically. But if you're a current subscriber, then then you kind of have... You can keep your no ads option. I'm in a difficult situation at home. I've got a lot of content engages. I've got way too many people in my household. So if I was to have uh, Netflix with ads, I know that each time an ad would come up, my wife would say, why have we got these ads showing up? And I, I don't think that I'm... Actually, to be fair, I, I think there are a lot of households that are like that. There is this efficiency of consumption that maybe a lot of people are willing to pay for. And we saw it with Spotify as well, right? So we see it with, with other mediums. But that said, you know, we, we do have... Uh, the current economic climate and you you know there are opportunities to save there 
why not? Mm. Mm, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I might have a look through all the bills and at some point may say, well, actually, let's have a look at the frequency of the ads. Let's try it. So that there might be ways in which we can just test it. And if, if it doesn't work out, mm. if I do get those complaints, then we'll revert back. Yeah, I do think it's an, up, it's an uphill battle because people got so used to, well, if I'm paying for content, then I don't want to see any ads on it. Right. Um, which, which Netflix was probably one of the biggest beneficiaries of. It's like, oh, we have this product yeah okay fine pay a subscription but we will give you the content that you want without any interruption and by sort of now maybe walking that back a little bit so i'm not sure if people are going to be responsive to say well but i'm paying as much as i used to be paying and now i have to see ads that doesn't seem like right but we see that with sky well and we saw that with cable and yeah. I mean, it, it, it's nothing new but i shouldn't name sky specifically yeah you're, you're right it's, it's yeah all sort of cable television but you know, it, it could be baked into the norm after a particular amount of time. Yeah. With, with Netflix in particular, what I, I feel is um, should be celebrated is the fact that they are trying this. They, they've taken that step. That they, they've taken ages saying that they, they wouldn't, mm-hmm. and they've, they've taken that dive into it. So the, the, the user base may shift their patterns on the subscription model. You've, you've also got to, to consider that um, content consumption patterns change throughout the year. So there could be times of the year where you either, some people might have canceled their subscription because there wasn't the content that they, they wanted. So they, they switched platforms. But now as opposed to canceling, they might change their subscription levels. Uh, okay, that's interesting. Mm. Um, and this is the last quick hit. Um, over the last few weeks, uh, we've broken records for extreme heat across Europe, the USA and Asia. I think in India, they hit, they surpassed like 50 degrees wow. Celsius. What do you think of the response from the media and advertising industry? And I know we've spoken, shares a bit about sustainability and DEI and how that intersects. Do you want to go first? Well, I mean, I think the response is too quiet. This is uh, the biggest existential threat to humanity that we've seen in a very long time, maybe ever, Um, certainly to the well-being of people. And I would think people are going to be like shouting about this. Now, I think news organizations this past week have done a really great job, past week, two weeks, have done a great job of reporting on this and, and reporting on this from a, a climate, uh, at least the ones that I read, that, that this is part of a broader crisis, but governments are acting too slowly, brands are acting too slowly, advertisers are acting too slowly. I, I think part of it is just sort of basic capitalism, you know, it should be good for business to get involved in sustainability. And perhaps, Shez, you can shed a little more light on that. Um, But in terms of the sort of short term, we just need to drive profits up. Uh, There's been too much resistance across all businesses to actually making some sort of a transition. I mean, this has been going on for decades. We've known about it. It's really frustrating that we're not seeing movement on this. And I would think that there's opportunities for creativity to come to address this type of issue. Consumers want to see brands that are taking actual action here. And there are creative ways that advertisers can highlight that without greenwashing, but businesses need to actually back that up. Mm-hmm. So I struggle with this one. And the reason being is because I, I totally understand where you come from, Jack, and I, and I appreciate where you come from, but nothing can happen overnight, right? It's, it's, a, it's a massive system. I feel as though we're doing our best as an industry with some of the education that we, you know, so the AdNet Zero, of course, which is something that I've done and I really recommend anyone, you know, it's a, I think it was really, I think it was like 250 quid or something like that. It's like really cheap. Uh, I, I recommend everybody to 
to, to do the course. I, I think that the education piece is something that we've invested in. I feel like organizations have, have got on to and, and appreciated the economics of it and uh, the commercial opportunity around being more sustainable as well. So that the business component has definitely been appreciated. We understand that reducing the frequency on, on certain ads can help from a carbon footprint perspective as well. And that, that's been taken into account. And of course, that that's being measured. So I, I do feel like the steps are being taken. Maybe nothing's happening fast enough. But it's really well. I think that's what it is exactly for for me. Especially, you know, I'm a young person, and we've known about this for so long. So I I can appreciate that there has been a lot of progress made in this area just in the past few years. But really, this should have been done three, four decades ago. Mm. The things that are happening now should have been done back then. And now we're basically out of time. So there needs to be, I think, some some more drastic changes being made. But I I totally. Hear you. I, it's a very difficult issue, and and it takes time. Pragmatically speaking, but, I, th- I think that's it's because you're a young person. Mm. Uh, being being an older person, <laughs> I, I would say, again, you're absolutely right. We, we should have tackled this much much earlier, but we haven't. So I would spend my time, you know, spend my time on what it is that we can do to to make those shifts. But it is difficult from an economic standpoint. Making what we're talking about is making some huge changes with the economic downturn that, that we have. Mm. So I, I do feel like organizations are in a difficult place where they're trying to tackle sustainability, but also tackle the, the balance sheet. That's not an excuse. It's just a, it's just a fact. And there are some organizations that are doing it really, really well, and some organizations that are a little bit blind. I think those that are blind to it or, or not embracing the the need to make change to tackle um, climate change, to, to, tackle, to, to be a lot more sustainable. Those those should be um, highlighted and, and we, we should definitely do something about pushing them in the right direction for sure. But those that are doing the right thing should be celebrated. And I, I think that we, we do some of that celebration already. We, we within our organization are spending quite a bit of time ensuring that we're doing what we can to, to be as, as sustainable as possible. And that's from everything from our servers through to the, the way that we're delivering ads. And I don't think that we're alone in that space. Mm. Which is really heartening that it is moving and there are like, you know, as in a parallel almost with talking about sustainability and talking about DEI, mm. that there is, that these conversations weren't happening anywhere near as wide, like widely or in such depth. And so I really appreciate you both joining for this conversation. And I think that's probably all we have time for. So thanks so much to the both of you for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time. <laughs>